podcast I've thought about making for a long time. I have made once. It was one of our last episodes of drafting, what was it called? Let's Draft, Magic Arena Drafting Club. But then I took it down off the internet. Um, I feel compelled to do it again. This is a huge trigger warning. We're going to be covering issues of violence, violence against women, murder, mental illness. Um, I think I want to start by self-exploring of why why I'm even telling this story in the first place. Uh, I'm not quite sure, other than I feel compelled. Um, it's a story, and it's uh, it's something I feel like people should hear, but maybe they don't want to. I don't know. It's a story for me that puts things into perspective about what's important in this world. Um, I think it's also something I feel I need to do to, I don't know, move forward a bit. I've been in this place for like, it's been two years now. God, it's been three years. It's been three years now, um, and I feel like I've been in this place where uh, I'm, like, not moving. I'm, like, I'm in this turtle shell to make sure nothing can hurt me. And uh, I wonder if talking about it more is part of getting out of it, or I should say I feel like talking about it more as part of me getting out of it. Cause it's this thing that I'm like not allowed to talk about kind of from my elf own self imposement. It's this horrible story that you just don't talk about with people. Cause it's a huge bummer. And it brings up all these weird things. Like if you talk about it, are you feeding their desire to be like a, <clears throat> um, like somebody who's watching and like, you know, enjoying it like a fiction story. Or is it like me saying, woe is me, look at this thing that I've been through? Or is it like just talking about something horrible that happened to real people and even doing that is not right? I don't know. There's been a lot of reasons why I haven't talked about it. Um, But I guess I just... I've thought about talking about it a lot of times and every time I'm like, I'm not, I'm not there and I feel there and I feel like I'm doing it for very selfish reasons too. I've felt very selfish actually the last um, month or so. I've very much turned inward and thought about what does Jeff want right now. Um, and uh, I want to share this story. I think it's time for me to share it on this show. So here we go. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a news report if you want to see um, a different angle of it. Uh, 
So growing up, uh, I grew up in a Brady Bunch family. Um, half of the, uh, you know, my grandma and my grandpa, uh, their spouses died when they were fairly young, like mid-30s or something like that. And uh, one from cancer, one from a car crash. And so these two people found each other and married, and they both had two kids, right? So I come from like a split family. So what that means is I'm not actually like blood related to half of them. However, growing up, I didn't know that because this happened way before I was born. This happened when my mom was like in her young teens. And, uh, you know, that I came from the type of family where every Christmas everybody would get together and every Thanksgiving. And so like, like big extended family, like I, I was, I had to go to like three Christmases, right? <laughs> uh, it freaked my wife out at first cause they were all huge too. Um, but yeah, it was all down in Worthington, Minnesota. I would always go and there would be huge Christmases there with all the extended relatives and stuff like that. And um, yeah, growing up, I thought they were all my blood relatives. I found out later they weren't, but um, it was uh, each parent had two kids that came together. And uh, one of them, the, uh, the mom had a girl who then went on to have three kids, and one of them, the middle child, was this brilliant little boy. Uh, every All of us could tell right away this kid was brilliant. His name was David. And uh, he was like an artist at an early age, would draw all the time. As he developed, um, he was just smart. He was just really good at, like, you know, school and whatnot, all the way till up when he got to, like, high school and college level he was getting into like um uh decoding like military decoding was the stuff he was starting to like work towards like brilliant person like could write all different types of code um but then a horrible thing happened that i have so much compassion to anybody anybody this happens to is he developed a mental illness in his 20s uh as unfortunately happens like early 20s that unfortunately happens with people um it must have been so horrible you know for his immediate family to see their son change like this this brilliant son all of a sudden developed um paranoid schizophrenia started hearing voices you know china was talking to him through implants in his teeth and all this stuff and started telling people things like if you only knew what i heard and all this stuff and um you know, he kind of deteriorated a bit, uh, played a lot of World of Warcraft, got into, you know, some alt-right rabbit holes a bit. Um, wasn't super, like, presentable to the public, would mostly, like, hang out in the basement, wouldn't go to as many uh, family events. And when he did, he wouldn't really, you know, clean up or much or anything like that. My, my heart always went out to him. I was always one of the defenders in the family, as the family would be like, man. David's taking a bad turn. For one thing, you know, we didn't understand how bad the the um, paranoid schizophrenia was because uh, it just wasn't talked about very much. And uh, he starts to, you know, disconnect from society more and more. Still brilliant, still has a brilliant mind. Um, and then one day he snapped. And the voices in his head, you know, uh, made him snap. And um, this is a huge trigger warning, everybody. But I really want to tell this story in full. 
while at home with his mother, his younger sister who had Down syndrome. This was three years ago, everybody. It was right after 4th of July during COVID summer. Up in, um, up in Minnesota. Um, he was at home with his grandmother who was staying with them for like a month or two during COVID to get out of the nursing home. His younger sister who had Down syndrome and his mother and his father were all home. And like him and his father were doing something, but he like snuck away. And uh, next thing the father hears, the mother yelled, yelled, David, no. And that's because David had come up on her with a huge wrench and hit her in the head several times really hard. And then he attacked his younger sister, and then he attacked his grandmother. And then he put down the wrench and sat down, and his father ran upstairs and saw the carnage and called the police. And um, at that point, I got a phone call. I was at home. I remember that day we were outside gardening and we were having lunch and we were sitting down and about to have lunch, all three of us, and um, get a phone call and it's my mom saying that uh, there's been an accident. She doesn't have any details, but that David hurt um somebody in the family, hurt grandma, I think she said. David hurt grandma. That's all we knew. And that I I was given the name of the hospital that they were at. And so we didn't think it was a huge deal. We heard David hurt grandma, hospital, but my mom did not sound panicked at all. It sounded like like David pushed her over or something, you know. So we get ready and we go to the hospital and we're the first ones there. And, uh, you know, we park in the parking ramp and we walk into the hospital reception area and say we're here to see, you know, my, my grandma's name. And uh, she, you can tell the reception receptionist, like, mood changes. Like she saw a ghost a little bit. And she said, they're not here. They're up in the ICU, the emergency care unit. And so then we left that door and started walking up the sidewalk to the emergency care unit, which was just like a block away. And I remember as we were walking up there, I turned to my family and I said, I think we need to prepare that this might be serious. And that's, that's what it hit me. It hit me when that lady looked at me. Because I could tell she knew something. She looked like she had pity for me. It turns out this is a story that those the people at that hospital all knew about. They talked about it for a while. I had a friend who um, actually worked there, and she's like, oh, yeah, the ladies talked about this one. That was uh, quite the thing. Um, So we walk into the ICU... And I'm kind of running point here, so I walk up to the 
you know, the, the receptionist there who's like covered by a, one of those glass, you know, spit, uh, poly things. Cause we're in COVID season now, right? We're, we're post post George Floyd, Minneapolis, like two months deeper. It's now middle of July, right? We're in COVID like six months now. Everybody's got their masks on, right? And, uh, I go up there and I say, I'm here to see my grandma's name and same thing. He looks like he's seen a ghost and he, his back like stiffens up and he like calls somebody and he's like, okay, you can go through that door. And that already was weird. Cause he pointed to a door to the side that looked like more of a, um, more of like an employee door or a door that they bring, you know, like gurneys and stuff through. It wasn't the hallway that like it looked like everybody was going down so I keep getting these signals like man this is bad and I start to kind of steal myself and um at this point I'm still feeling very strong and very in control like I'm I'm gonna be an example and not you know break down if this is bad type stuff <clears throat> and uh so I walk down this hall and it's a long hall with nobody in it with a couple turns that's why it feels so long too you know you take a turn it turns again and it's just a long white hall and then there at the end of the hall, I see uh, three chairs, and they're kind of in the corner of the next bend of this white hall. It's just me, my wife, and my son are waiting in the waiting room at this point. And it's um, my uncle, the person who was not attacked, um, sitting there, white as a ghost, in clothes that look like they're covered in mud, like he had been working out in the yard all day, like blue jeans and like a t-shirt. And sitting next to him is a slightly younger man who just looks very pensive that I've never seen before. And I walk up and he says, hey, Jeff, this is um, my pastor. And I don't remember if he said much of anything else. He, again, he was in like, uh, he was in some deep shock, very white. And I sat down in the third chair and I noticed that the pastor wasn't touching him and that John was kind of sitting there all like, uh, kind of like a, I don't know, like a child, like a scared child kind of. So I put my hand on his knee to try to give him some human contact. And that's when I noticed that all that stuff on him wasn't mud, it was blood. And, but when blood dries, it gets pretty dark like mud, you know, it's not red, it's like dark brown. Um, yeah, so I just put my hand on him. No, was it. I just, I squeezed his knee. I just thought he could use some human contact and I just sat there and I was trying to take in the situation. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't, I mean, I, I was starting to understand this was bad, but I still was in, I was starting to be going to shock myself or whatever. At this point, a couple doors open, and uh, like a head doctor lady with like a nurse by her side walks out. She actually walks up to me. I think maybe she had interacted with John previously and knew that he was a little bit on the shocked, comatose side, so she came to me, and she said, okay, it's, uh, or wait, reliving this now that's right first she told John that it was just bad something to that effect and I don't remember if she was talking about one of the three of them or all of them 
but something to the effect that it was bad. Some type of bad news that I don't recall the details of. And then she looked at me and she said, okay, we're going to go in now. And uh, I stood up as well as John and the pastor and we started to follow her and she actually grabbed me. She like grabbed my arm. And she swung open the doors and she said, who do you want to see? Because at this point I understood it was all three of them. I think this was explained at some point that all three of them were there. I don't remember if it was the receptionist or if it was her, but at this point I'm understanding that all three of them are there. And she says, who do you want to see? And that's when I broke down. And I said, my grandma. And as I started saying it, I started blubbering. And pretty quickly, uh, we came to a room that was all like those drawn curtains. And uh, they were each behind a drawn curtain. And uh, my cousin who had down into emergency services or, or into surgery and um she draws back the curtain um she draws back the curtain I can't do this when she pulled back the curtain I lost it my knees got weak. I turned around for a second to leave and then steadied myself and turned back around again and walked up to Grandma. It was like a horror movie, everybody. It was like um, her head was like twice as big because it was all puffy and swollen. And she had all this gauze wrapped around her head to stop the swelling, which made her head look even bigger. And her head was literally in a pool of blood. And for so long, I saw that every day. That picture would just flash into my head. It was like a horror movie. That was the moment for me out of all of this trauma that um, really shook me to my core. You know, she wasn't moving. She had tubes all up in her. And uh, I walked up to her and I grabbed her hand and I just started talking to her and started just repeating everything was gonna be okay. Everybody loves her. Everybody's here. It really made me think about, it made me think about when you, um, people say, you know, they want to be surrounded by loved ones when they die. People talk about, uh, you know, how they want to die. Some people want to die with a pile of money, right? People have all these different things. They want to be, have family, right? They want to be loved. They want whatever. They want it to be painless, whatever. And I remember thinking this is the worst way. Her grandson, who she loved very much, did this to her. But before he did it to her, she got to witness him doing it to her daughter, his mother. 
And I thought about that stuff for years, about the horror that must have gone through my grandma's head. And it made me just reconsider life in general and made me think, you know, that's the bad stuff. That's the actual bad stuff. That's what we have to avoid. All this other stuff is not bad. It made me really defensive and protective as a person ever since then. <clears throat> I stood there for, I don't know, I think it was about 20 minutes. I remember the nurse cracked some jokes, and I've ever since I love nurses so fucking much. She made me, she, she gave me so much strength, that nurse. She gave me so much strength. She knew exactly what I needed to hear. And one of the things I needed here is that this is unastoundingly crazy and horrible. And this is terrible. For some reason, and I think other people who have gone through trauma can relate, sometimes all you need to hear is, man, that was absolutely bar I'm so sorry you had to go through that it's not recognition because you feel crazy right um, so after about 20 minutes my mom rushed in and immediately grabbed grandma's other hand and started saying prayers, started reciting Bible verses. It makes me tear up a little bit. My mom was so strong during all of this. I, I got so much respect for her. She was... They were all left on life support for a very long time, even though their prospect of living was almost nil. It's just the decision that the father made. He, want, he was holding out hope, you know? But after one to two weeks, they were each taken off of life support. But during those two weeks, my mom was in the hospital like 24-7 by their sides. She's such a strong person. I also went back several times, but nothing was like that first encounter where you go from thinking that, you know, she got pushed down the stairs and has a broken bone to then seeing something that looks like it belongs in a horror movie and then realizing it's somebody you love and then realizing somebody you love did this to them. And there's two other people you love in the next two rooms in the same situation. Um... I've gone to some therapy to talk about this, you know, some things that really helped me were, I, I, I could never get out of my head what my grandma must have been thinking, because she saw it happen to her relatives first, but she actually may not have, right? They were actually in different rooms. The scream happened. 
talking through this with my therapist. She's like, you know what? Your grandma may may not have really thought anything. She may not have even known it was David, you know. She might have just gotten one hit and then the lights went out. And that actually gave me a lot of comfort. Because the thing I could never stop thinking about is what a horrible way to go. My grandma led this such a wonderful life. She was so nice to me as a kid. You know, when I was kind of an effeminate kid. Um, who didn't like sports, you know, or, or hunting and stuff like that. She, well, she would always hang out with me. You know, I was a grandma's boy. And I loved her a lot. And um, to think that this is how it ended for her, to me, was always the most tragic thing I had ever heard. Like, how could it end like this for her? Right? She had all those wonderful Christmases with all these grandchildren, and then one of them turns on her and her daughter. Three generations of women. But he didn't touch his dad. Oh, I do feel a little better talking about it. I want to, like, apologize to everybody for, like, unloading this trauma on you. You know, another thing that, a couple other things the therapist said to me that made me feel better was, um, this happened during COVID, and when I went to everybody around me and tried to express the trauma I was going through, I got a lot of, I don't know what I got a lot of. I got a lot of what I wasn't expecting. I was, I, the first responses I got were from nurses and relatives, And it was, oh my God, this is absolutely horrible. This is something that most humans never have to go through. And I'm so sorry. And it feels so validating to hear that. And that's all that mattered, I guess, at that point is to feel like I'm not going crazy. And this is, these are normal feelings I'm having for this situation. And, um, But when I went around and told everybody, everybody was dealing with their own COVID stuff. And I even got some impressions from people like, yeah, so your relative died. I'm like, no, did did you hear what I said? Like three generations of women were killed by their own family member, by their son, their grandson, their brother. That was my cousin. I saw him all the time growing up. I was the one who defended him when he started playing World of Warcraft every time. Like, I'm, I know these people deeply, and they killed each other. It was horrible, and the way that it was done was so horrible. And, uh, yeah, my therapist was like, yeah, they, um, they were completely in, incapable of supporting you in a way that you needed to be supported. And that made me feel good. It made me feel like I wasn't being, you know, like a crybaby going around and being like this horrible thing happened and people being like, yeah, so your relative died too, huh? <laughs> Even so, it was weird. It happened with some of our relatives too. Some of our relatives, it affected them deeply and they've never been the same, much like me. And then some literally said it affected them less than other murders they had gone through. And I, I can't understand it. I can't, but uh, I don't know, everybody, maybe I'm the crazy one here. 
but the therapist was really helpful in just validating um, validating that I wasn't going crazy, that, you know, the gaslighting I was getting from people around me wasn't, was mostly them trying to deal with their own trauma of dealing with COVID and all the craziness that was happening. Plus, again, we were two months after George Floyd and Minnesota. It was a wild time. Everybody was dealing with so much. I had one friend, we're not friends anymore, but one friend who got mad at me for not spending enough time with him after that because I was dealing with my own stuff. Told me I was, needed to spend more time with him. I don't know. It was a, that was a really difficult time for me where I felt like... Who was that? <laughs> I don't want to say, Eric. I'm recording right now. I don't want yeah, people yeah. to hear this. I don't want people to hear their name. Um, so... I definitely started feeling like I was going a little crazy, which I think is part of the reason why we moved. Because we felt like we had been through this just awful fucking thing. And the world didn't feel safe anymore. And uh, we just wanted to run away, just get away. We moved to Iowa. We don't talk to as many people as we used to. We just were kind of like protecting ourselves. And, uh, you know, like our son, those closest to us. And then the other thing that the therapist said, if I can remember it now, I know there's one other thing. Oh, yeah. As I described that and described more about my family, she said, your family has a violent history. And I just I always thought that was interesting. That was another thing that just made me feel less... Um, I don't I'm going to keep using the word gaslit because I, I always, growing up, I was always told, like, you know, no, our family's great, like, pretty idyllic growing up situations. Even now, I'll talk to some people in my family, and they're like, no, we were, it was idyllic. It was perfect. <laughs> and I'm like, man, that's not the way I felt. Like, we had money. We had money. I mean, we weren't, like, you know, crazy rich, but, like, we, we had an in-ground pool. Let's put it that way. So we had money. Um... But, uh, yeah, never felt quite safe. Um, anyway, everybody, I don't know where else I'm going with any of this. I am glad that I got it out. It does feel very weird to put this out into the world. It's a very selfish thing. I, if I were to try to think of why I'm doing this for all of you, I have no idea. Again, there might be some of you out there who are just like voyeurs who like hearing like the true crime aspect of it. Whatever, it's fine. Oh, I suppose y'all want to know what happened. He was deemed incompetent to stand trial and is now in a mental health institution in Minnesota for the rest of his life being forced to take his medications. Um, his dad still keeps in contact with him and kind of tells the rest of the family what's going on. You know, he had a psychotic break, so now that he's on his medications, he apparently realizes what he did, but none of us really know because the father's the only one who actually talks to him. You know, a lot of people in the family have, like, deep hatred for him. Uh, I'm a little more on the deep pity side. I think the fact that he developed um, 
paranoid schizophrenia in his 20s is just such a fucking brutal thing for anybody to have to go through. I feel so bad. But then he did a horrible thing, so I don't know. Am I supposed to feel bad for him? I don't know. Maybe that was part of my whole reason of going down the determinist route. It's like, how do you explain stuff like this? Was it a choice he made? I don't, I don't know. Apparently China was telling him to do all this. I don't know, everybody. Yeah, I quit doing art right about the same time. And uh, that's right about when the Forever Quest podcast started, too. It started at the beginning of COVID, but then we, you know, quit the magic one and hit this one full gear about the same time I hit quit doing art and we started talking about moving. You can go back and hear the episode where I say we're back. I went through some stuff, you know. Um, I think I might be at a place where I'm finally starting to move again, but I'm not sure. I've started to make some brand new art. And one of the last pieces I ever made was I painted my grandmother and my cousin and my aunt I, on one painting and then I gave the paintings out to people in the family who wanted to remember them and I remember as I was cutting the stencil for the painting just crying over the stencil and all the tears soaking into the the hundred weight cardboard but I think that was a really therapeutic process for me to just stare at their faces to just stare at their faces and study their faces after it all happened. And now I'm starting to look at making some new stuff. I don't know if I'm ready to interact with the, you know, the world quite in the same way still though. I still feel like the world is a very dangerous place and I prefer to hide from it for the most part, ever since this incident, and I think I still feel that way. It's like I want to do everything from the safety of my basement, you know. It's also like I only care about a couple things anymore, you know, and that's just the few people that are closest to me. And I just want to protect them, you know, like a cougar. And uh, I don't know, just try to ensure that none of us have the same ending. I love you, Grandma. You meant a lot to me. You know, when I was growing up and I would always go to these Christmases and all these Fourth of July events, all the guys would get together and go play basketball or whatnot. And you would take me to the mall and uh i remember we'd go into kmart and i remember i'd always want the gi joes i remember they had snake eyes and um whiteout was that his name the dude who had skis and snake eyes the ninja and they were like two ninjas oh and the shadow step oh my god shadow step was the most dope with the ninja stars and the he-men i remember the he-men that were in the Kmart, and you'd almost always get me something while we were there. And then I remember as time went on and politics got worse, 
and you started voting for Trump, I stopped talking to you as much. And, uh, then I remember, struggling with the fact I wasn't talking to you very much and I wanted to but it was COVID and I talked to Sean and I said to Sean I said hey Sean I really want to see my grandma but she's really at risk and it's COVID I don't talk to her much anymore because she's started voting for Trump and I held that against her I didn't say that part to Sean but it's the truth and um he said, just ask her if, um, if you can go, if she's okay with it. And so I did. I called her. And uh, she was at David's house. And I said, can I come visit? She said, I would love you to. And it was um, July 3rd, 2020. I remember I got made fun of for walking in the house with a mask. We all got made fun of because it was the house of Trump, you know, Fox News on all the time type of deal. So they teased us for a while, and after the teasing was done, you know, we caught up a little bit. And none of us touched each other because of COVID, but then as we stood up to leave, I said, Grandma, I just really want to hug you. Is that okay? Then we did. Then we left. Turns out David was there. He was in the basement, though. They didn't want him to come out or something. And then a couple days later, the murder happened. I'm so glad I got to see... I'm so glad I got to see you.